1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now, I get to see lots of potential property deals each and every week. I am looking for potential opportunities for myself, along with uh, for a small number of private clients and also for a handful of uh, subscribers to our property deal tip service. In addition to our own systems, I'm also on a large number of mailing lists and in a few online groups as well. Therefore, I probably get to see probably around 150 to 200 potential property deals each and every week or told. I do say no to the vast majority of these deals, though. And so today I decided to review a few of them to give you some insights into why I said no in the spirit of sharing with you, dear listener. So let's dig a little deeper now uh, why so many deals that just don't make the grade, at least as far as I'm concerned.
0: Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter.
1: Well, as I mentioned, I do get to see quite a lot of property deals. I regularly see and am presented with uh, potential projects fallen, falling under at least you know, some of the following categories. Apparently below market value or BMV opportunities, potentially highly profitable flips, so-called high yield buy to lets no or low cash left in BRR projects, development and conversion projects with big profit potential, Rent to rent deals with next to no cash required, serviced accommodation opportunities worth over a £1,000 a month, cash flow per, 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 excuse me, per property, portfolios and apartment blocks for sale, off market of course, holiday homes, fractional ownership and other timeshare style opportunities. Basically, all shapes and sizes and more besides. So I get a lot of practice in sniffing out a decent deal, you might say. I would imagine that around 80% of the properties and opportunities that I personally come into contact with, I can say no to very quickly. And the main reason for that is that I know what I am looking for in the first place. I know whether I'm looking at certain strategies, locations, values, return expectations, tenant type and so on. And this certainly helps to sort out the wheat from the chaff in the first instance. In fact, when I have a conversation with a deal sourcer, say, who then asks me what I'm looking for, uh, I'm then usually greeted with surprise and a comment along the lines of, so you really do know what you want then, when I tell them. So that's the first point then. Know what you're looking for and be able to articulate it in a short summary statement. However, my challenge these days is that I am in fact looking at several different strategies and locations all at the same time, as I'm not just looking for me anymore, but that's another story. So once we have the general description written down and, you know, committed to memory, I tend to have a top line filtering method that helps me to focus on the 20% of the 20% that make it this far, for example, I might have a minimum gross yield metric for a buy to let opportunity or a minimum expected monthly cash flow figure for one of my cash flow strategies or even a monthly profit or return on investment figure for a flip BRR or development project. At this stage it's a simple hurdle rate as they call it that any opportunity needs to get over before I'll even look at it more deeply. And this is particularly handy when analyzing inbound marketing inquiries from third parties such as deal sources and agents. So the second point is to set your initial hurdle rates and minimums in order to save you time and energy reviewing bad deals. For the active searches that we do. We apply some golden rules, as I like to call them, which helps to squirt out the equivalent of the filtered inbound inquiries from the agents and deal sources that I just referred to. Thus, from a long list of something like six to eight hundred possible opportunities per month, personally, I'm looking more closely at something like 32 possible deals a month or approximately one a day typically. I've developed a a range of standard deal templates for each of the scenarios mentioned earlier in in the the top of the the podcast, uh, which quickly allows me to run the numbers on all of these types of opportunities. It then takes me up to half an hour to undertake a quick desktop review for a single property which looks at the purchase price, works or conversion cost and gross development value or GDV which allows me uh, to qualify properties uh, to be highlighted. I then apply my more in-depth filters such as profit, added value gain, cash investment requirement, monthly cash flow and return on investment, for example. But that's all pre-calculated in the models that I use. Some deals will fall by the wayside at this point too, as you might imagine. So wherever you know, sorry, we're entering into ever decreasing circles all the time, just filtering down, filtering down, qualifying out and just focusing on those small number of deals that perhaps could make the grade. And of what we're now left with, I'll undertake a more in-depth analysis, perhaps arrange for any supporting information to be pulled, such as a desktop valuation or title plans or set up a property viewing if it's appropriate. You get the picture. However, I promised you I wanted to run through a few actual cases that I looked at recently, but said no to. So here they are now. The first one, property number one, is a high yield studio apartment in rather uh, in Manchester. I actually looked at this opportunity on behalf of a client who asked me to conduct a portfolio review on their existing portfolio. However, this particular deal was not yet completed, and it was, it was more of a case of, would you proceed with this or not, Richard? So I had a look, and here's the headline numbers. Now, there's a lot of numbers in this podcast today, so I'm going to try and you know, relay that to you in a way that perhaps you can comprehend it. But the show notes have got tables and things like that to make it easier on the eye. So by all means, refer to the show notes to get perhaps a better picture of, uh, of the numbers involved here. But essentially I've got a table here with two columns on the one side on the left hand side I've got description on the right hand side I've got the value so reading down we've got purchase price sorry 45,000 pounds paying cash refurb 10,000 pounds I've I've taken it at face value the figures the uh, investors given to me Uh, buying cost, which includes a sourcing fee here 6462 pounds. Gross development cost, £61,462, that's basically a sum of the previous three, uh, three figures. Uh, the rent per month um, and the gross yield, £465 per month at a gross yield of 12.4%. Uh, disclosed rent deductions per month of £150, leaving a notional monthly cash flow of 315315 £315. 315. So at face value, we have an apparently high yielding and affordable property with a decent cash flow, on paper at least. So why did I say no to this deal then? Well, firstly, the ROI falls below my personal minimum, which based on these numbers equated to 6.2%. Now, some other investors might be happy with that, especially when they have no debt on the property but it does not meet my personal criteria, that's all. Second, the cash flow states it is not the real cash flow position in reality because there are two big missing items there, voids and maintenance in particular. The figures presented exclude any provision for when the property is empty, here with the justification that it comes pre-tenanted. However, it's unrealistic to expect that it will always be occupied even when a tenant has been in situ for several years as is the case here. Therefore it's prudent to make a provision for some voids and I therefore assume the NLA average of three weeks per year. As regard maintenance um, or more fully a provision for repairs, damage, maintenance, updates, replacements and overhauls, (laughs) again, it's an unrealistic uh, position not to have any costs over over an extended period of time. Therefore, I tend to allow an initial provision as a deduction from rent of somewhere between 5 and 15% of the annual rental figure. And this depends on the condition of the property, the type of property and indeed the type of tenant. In this case uh, a full refurbishment will be undertaken to a flat um, and then it's going to be let to an LHA tenant so I went with 5% on this particular case could have easily justified a little bit more but I went with 5% and the net result of this was to reduce the monthly cash flow from the stated figure or the claimed figure of 315 pounds per month to a more realistic 265 pounds per month instead and the revised ROI of return on investment was then 5.2%. So it's fallen from 6.2 to 5.2%. Personally, I would accept the cash flow of £265 per month, but not the ROI. And upon query, the investor client was also expecting a better ROI as well. So kind of confirm my initial thinking, really. It might not work for them, in other words. So based on the numbers, there could be a case that this deal still gets a yes. Um, Not from me, and it sounds like not from the investor client, but from another investor, perhaps looking to beat the bank, for example, Uh, because 5.2 percent still beating the bank, but I've not finished yet. (laughs) In this case, a survey had already been undertaken, which had some of the following comments, including uh, the following from the surveyor themselves. In the overall opinion, the very first sentence said it is advisable that you think carefully before committing to purchase this property. It doesn't start too well. (laughs) And then there's a description discrepancy. It was presented as a one bedroom flat when in fact it's better described as a studio because the bedroom isn't actually separate. um, There were concerns over the overall property condition and the local area, affecting its resale potential. It had suspected um, asbestos and recorded traces of damp as well. There was no form of heating present in the property, uh, which was was in fact refused by the current tenant. Pretty sure that's illegal. Not for them to refuse, but to be providing accommodation, which has got no heating. There you go. Um, and the value stated by, on the valuation report was £40,000 rather than £45,000. By the way, it was originally offered at £50,000. It had already been renegotiated reneg- down to £45,000. So, yeah. <laughs> but normally, I'd, I'd actually be rubbing my hands with glee if I saw a survey like this one, at least in part. The list of problems identified and the down valuation could offer an opportunity to renegotiate the price, obviously. However, when you see the surveyor basically say, don't buy this, you have to be worried. (laughs) So whilst a reduced price could potentially be negotiated to cover the lower valuation and higher costs, to put things right, in my opinion, this one got a thumbs down from me, and that's without even reviewing the legal aspects. Who knows what that might throw up. But would you have been tempted at any point, I wonder? You may have been drawn in by its affordability or it's high yield and cash flow possibly. And now after I shared some of the reality of the deal, what would you say now? (laughs) The situation here is that this is also a deal introduced by a property sourcer and the client has probably been misrepresented on a few levels and is seeking a refund of of their fees, which I'm helping to guide them through. But guess what? The terms and conditions of the uh, uh, pro- sorry provided by the deal sourcer don't allow, allow for the fee to be returned. Oh dear. But if you want to know how to avoid falling into this trap, then just drop me a quick line and ask to receive a copy of my Property Horror Stories article uh, that I wrote for uh, YPM magazine on deal sources and I'll gladly share it with you. It kind of talks about some tips in that respect and how to avoid it. So just drop me an email there. Okay, so property number two then. Is it going to get any better? (laughs) Property number two is described as a turnkey rent to SA deal in West London. And I wanted to share this one as it addresses two of the so-called high cash flow slash low cash in strategies in one, i.e. rent to rent and serviced accommodation or SA. The email from the sourcer, Is quite tempting. SA deal in West London, income seventy percent occupancy, circa three seven one five. That's three thousand seven hundred fifteen pounds. Turnkey. Turnkey is a nice phrase, isn't it? And and this suggests you can make nearly four thousand pounds a month without any effort, doesn't it? No, wrong. (laughs) So I decided to plug it into my nifty little SA deal calculator or service accommodation deal calculator. And what promises to be 3,715 pounds a month in income actually looks as follows. So it's a table with three columns here. So you're gonna to have to sort of imagine this in your mind. I've got three columns. I've got the description on the left hand side. I've got 40% occupancy in the middle column and 70% occupancy in the right hand column. And I'll explain the different occupancy levels in a second and you'll understand what that means if you don't already. So first of all, room rate, the um, the has quoted £175 per night as a room rate. I've just left that for now in both 40% and 70% occupancy uh, uh, states or uh, assumptions, let's say. So that would produce a monthly turnover of 2100 at 40% or 3675 at 70%. It's close enough to 3715 There's probably a bit of rounding going on there, but that's pretty much equivalent to what the saucer should be saying. But then there's booking and card fees that needs to be, du- be deducted rather. And, you know, uh, I could get into a long preamble about this uh, point, but just trust me, uh, if you don't have booking fees such as or don't have high booking fees such as with people like Airbnb, yes, you're going to get a lower rental. So it kind of boils down to the same thing. And there's a cost of processing credit cards through PayPal or Stripe or something like that. So you get the picture. Booking card fees are going to be either £453 or £898 per month depending on occupancy. The rent that needs to be paid to the owner of the property every month regardless of what happens is £2,100 in either case. The OPEX that I've allowed is pretty modest to be honest with you. The OPEX here is about it's really just covering uh, things like having a channel management system or just some other bits and pieces like that, really. It's £40 a month. Um, I'll probably be a bit light here, but they're all a bit generous. But I'll leave it for that for now. So now, if you take those deductions into consideration from the gross rent figures, in the 40% example, you're actually looking at a monthly loss of £1,214. And even with the 70% occupancy figure, a loss of £320 each and every month. And in addition, this upfront cash required, I think there's a £3,000 sourcing fee and there's a £1,000 reservation fee. I'm assuming they're together, so that's £4,000 in each case. So the ROI or return on investment in either case uh, is a whopping minus 364% if you manage to achieve 40% occupancy and even a minus 96% if you did achieve a 70% occupancy rate. So, <laughs> that wouldn't have made it, would it, really, so far, just looking at that analysis. But I'm going to also state some of the other reasons why I would not do this deal, even if the figures looked a little bit better than they do right now. First of all, there's no assets. It is by definition an income strategy or a cash flow strategy, which is okay, but only really as long as you've got a long-term arrangement or commitment from the landlord or owner of the property. And I'd say it's got to be at least four maybe, what, four or five years or more. It might also be in a restricted area. Whilst the actual location is not stated, I, I didn't get actual postcode, in London, short-term renting above 90 days requires planning permission So if you haven't got planning permission, you can't let it for more than 90 days. There could be some hidden expenses. So for example, what about wear and tear damage and replacements on the property and furnishings? I've allowed, as I mentioned, 40 pounds a month for OPEX, but this can easily get out of control and and does not provide for replacement furniture at all. Then we've got, I love this, the holy grail of 70% occupancy. SA is in effect, sorry, is in effect, a hotel model, and top hotels do actually manage to achieve seventy percent occupancy. You can just look it up on Google. Um, you know, there's various reports and uh, consultancies that produces data which will support this, and that's where this target comes from, the magical seventy percent figure. But top hotels are also very experienced. They spend lots on marketing and they have their tentacles into many sales channels as well. But most rent to SA operators are small and without the same reach or experience. So consider for a minute what does 70 percent occupancy mean? Well it's actually equivalent to renting out a property for five days of the week, every week, each and every week of the year without fail. How likely would you say that is? I can tell you, based on real experience, it's not that likely. I have several SA properties in different locations and we do not hit 70 percent occupancy consistently with ours, but maybe we're just really bad at it. (laughs) I don't know. I therefore look at a range of between 40 percent, which is three days per week on average throughout the whole year, and 70 percent, of course, which is five days per week uh, on average throughout the whole year. And, uh, and see where the break even is. A little bit of a hint here if you can break even at around about the 40 or 50 percent mark at a push then you might make a fist of SA or service accommodation by optimizing your occupancy rates but really that's where you start to make a margin above the 50 percent mark. Then of course we've got the room rate myth in this case £175 Of course, this is all predicated on achieving the magic room rate figure that's being quoted. Who knows where that's come from? Do your research, see what you can uh, book a room for that's equivalent at different times of the year as well. That's really important. So I don't know where this is exactly, but the photo in the photos, it does look like it's a one bedroom apartment in West London, generally speaking. Admittedly, it's got some nice facilities within the building, so I'm going to give it a little bit of a plus for that. However, if I tell you that we have literally just booked a one-week stay in West London for four people in a two-bedroom apartment in peak summer season, it's cost us £200 a night. That's an extra bedroom and in peak season. So how about a one-night stay on a cold February Tuesday night then? What do you reckon? Hmm. Enough said on that one then, probably. And I'm just going to pause for a second here. Yeah, sorry about that. I had to pause actually to um, catch my breath and have a little sip of the the red stuff that's next to me. Property number three. Property deal number three. Now, this one's a development project in the Midlands and it's described as three times commercial units with 15 rooms above. The market value is £450,000, offers in the region of £180,000. At first glance then, a potential gross profit of £270,000 which clearly caught my attention. So I dug a little deeper and here's what else was presented. I've got a table two columns on the left hand side is description on the right hand side is value. So purchase price offers in the region of £180,000. Estimated works costs 80 to £100,000. Gross development cost, therefore, summation of the two, let's say it's £280,000. Let's just say, take the higher figure. Market value, or the gross development value, £450,000. Target gross rent, as stated by the sourcer, £52,000. So therefore, we calculate the yield, I work this out, 18.6% on the gross development cost, or 11.6% on the gross development value. A profit on sale, if you decided to flip it, £170,000 are a whopping (laughs) 60.7%. Or if you decide to refinance and retain it, uh, return on investment assuming a 75% loan-to-value remortgage ROI would be 32.3%. So some pretty juicy numbers, right? Um, It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So you know the drill by now, don't you? What's missing then? All right, Okay, I'm going to tell you. So the assumption is it's for a 15 bed HMO above three commercial units. Uh, But the size certainly of the two upper floors where the HMOs would be just simply won't accommodate 15 rooms along with the required amenity space, which is kitchens and, and sort of living rooms and the facilities that are required, such as bathrooms. And even if it did, the rooms would be pretty grim. Assume perhaps 10 or 12 rooms at a push in this case, therefore. But this will reduce the rental indicated by 7,800 to 13,000 a year without even looking at the commercial rents. Next, the GDV, the gross development value, the market value is in dreamland. £450,000 is around 8.65% of the quoted gross annual rent. Well, it's a mixed-use uh, building, or it will be when it's when it's done up, and so it is a little bit more difficult to value. But I would say in this area, the maximum, as presented, would be around seven and a half times the annual rent, so three hundred ninety thousand, you know, reducing down to two hundred ninety-two thousand if uh, if it's only a ten-bed HMO that's possible. Again, just accepting at face value that the commercial rents are as stated. Then we look at the works cost estimate. The figure indicated was 80 to 100k. However, upon inspection, the place was completely gutted. It had both water and fire damage. It had the remnants of the the drug lab that caused the fire in the first place still present and even had a tree growing out of the kitchen roof. It's fair to say that it needed improvement, as the agents would say. My guy estimated 200,000 in renovation costs for this one not 80 to 100. Gross development cost, well the cost of works was mentioned but what was not mentioned and needs to be accounted for is stamp duty, legal fees, valuations and surveys, other professional fees such as planning fees and applications, holding costs like rent, rates, uh, utilities, insurance and security, finance related costs and lettings or sales related costs depending on your exit. I didn't get that far in my analysis, but this could easily account for tens of thousands of pounds here. And then we've got rental deductions. So assuming you wanted to refinance and keep it. When I worked on an average rental deduction across the newly development site of 30% on an all-inclusive basis, uh, but excluding the cost of a mortgage. So you need to take that into consideration as well. Okay, so simply by revising the base numbers, according to some of the things I've just mentioned above, um, we would have the following. So the purchase price, 180,000 offers in the region of, remember? remember. But let's say 150,000 being generous. Works budget, 200,000. Other project costs, well, if we're paying cash, it might be around 20,000 pounds, say. If it's financed, it might be more like 35,000. Gross development cost is therefore 370 to 385,000 pounds, depending on how we pay for it. The gross development value is more realistically 390,000 as a best case scenario or probably more realistically 292,000. And of course the revised rental figure based on lower number of units in the HMO accepting the commercial rents is 44,200 for a best case or 39,000 for a realistic case which would therefore produce an estimated flip profit of £20,000 on a best case basis or a £78,000 loss on a more realistic case basis and assuming you're paying cash without some of the extra financing costs. So the estimated return on investment for BRR, so that's assuming you refinance it and let it out, is probably 15%, which I have qualified as an extreme best case or more you know more realistically perhaps and paying cash eleven point five percent on the alternative uh, using the lower valuation or lower rent figure. So the estimated cash left in for a BRR would be something like 97,000 pounds on a best case or a more realistic 165-600 um, if, you if you're actually paying in cash and then refinance later. So obviously if you're, if you're financing in the first place that figure is going to go up as well. Right. So some people will still be tempted to do this deal then because they would have seen, you know, maybe 15% return on investment for the BRR, for example. But before you do ask me for the contact details, here are some other reasons why I said no to this one. First of all, this is analysis done on the back of a fag packet quite honestly, so inevitably I miss something and immediately I can think of I miss contingency costs, so I quoted 200,000 to do the works. I haven't really allowed any contingency in that, so that needs to be added on. There could be other things I've missed as well. I'm not actually convinced that the area has sufficient demand for either the retail units or the HMO rooms. I think we're probably going to get a lot of voids in other words. People don't really want to live on a high street, which is where it's located, in a small dingy room with access to shared bathrooms, you know, shared perhaps amongst 10 to 15 people. And if they do, they probably have little choice in the matter. So expect some antisocial behavior and some property damage and on top of what I've already allowed for. Then the saucer is not actually direct to vendor. So this brings with it more risk and you're actually at more of an arm's length basis. You're not in control of the purchase, in other words. And of course, there may be some structural problems. You know, it was a meth lab uh, that had a fire and water damage. There could be something lurking there that we need to fix. I'm not allowed for that. And of course, there's better opportunities to make this sort of return, 11.5% to 15%, that's on a best case scenario, uh, with less risk and less complexity on projects elsewhere. Okay, so that's a bit of a sprinkling on some of the recent deals that crossed my desk, which I said no to. It's possible that other investors and developers can see angles and opportunities that I have not. That's true. For example, with the last development project, I also considered splitting it into flats and adding an extension. And others may see other alternatives as well. I'm not trying to be negative, and nor am I trying to knock people or suggest that others have it all wrong. As I mentioned I'm judging many of these opportunities by my own standards and criteria and I'm both a tough person to please and also operate with a real-world approach to development and investments at the same time. I did mention at the start that I look at lots of deals each week and, and this is for our own portfolio or development. Sorry, for my own portfolio or developments let me clarify but also for my private clients and indeed for some of our Property Deal Tips subscribers as well. And if you want to have a chat or just start a conversation about any of these segments and how it could relate to you or how you could earn while you learn on one of my projects, for example, then by all means, just get in touch. But I hope that was helpful for you to see some of my own thought process when I look at deals and opportunities. Of course, I focused on the nose in this particular example. Perhaps I should focus on the yeses in another example. That hmm, might be an idea for another podcast. But please also remember that this is still very top level. Once I decide to move forward with a particular opportunity, I go on and do more you know, research and due diligence, I can tell you. But that's for another conversation, another day. Right, the glass of Cabernet that's uh, next to me today. Uh, and keeping me company whilst I uh, prepare the show for you is running a little bit low so that means it's time to wrap up and I hope you've enjoyed the show again this week but uh, remember the show notes can be found over at the website thepropertyvoice.net or if you want to talk about anything from today's show or just talk about property investing more generally you know you can always email me podcast at thepropertyvoice.net i will be more than happy to hear from you. Equally there's a phone number on my website I just signpost you to that. So if you prefer to talk rather than email me, just have a look at the website. And uh, on one of the pages there, there is a phone number and it tells you when I'm generally going to be available. So maybe I'm expecting a flurry of phone calls now. Who knows? Anyway, once again, all I want to say this week is thank you very much for listening. And uh, until next time on the Property Voice Podcast, it's ciao, ciao.